days. If you want to turn to John's Gospel, chapter 4. John's Gospel, chapter 4 and verse 34. Just have that open before you. Thank you, Lord. God, we pray for your continued revelation upon us tonight. Lead us in the way that you want us to go. Keep us attentive and sharp and discerning in these last days. We pray for each scripture that we read, that you will bring it to, to, to spiritual life within us. Lift the words off the pages, God, and let them be swords in our hands and motivation to our hearts. In Jesus' name. We're doing a series on end times for, for those of you here for the first time, and this is number nine in the series. who have come a long way, really, and some of the things we'll say tonight are, is built upon that, so I encourage you to go back over the series and catch up to how we got to here tonight. We've been looking a lot about watching. Jesus constantly says about end times believers, that's you. He constantly says the same thing again and again and again. Watch, watch and, watch and, watch and. And we've been looking at what we watch for, right? We watch for the political signs in the world, the economic signs in the world, ecological signs, and on and on it goes. And thus, we are able to keep our finger on the pulse of the move of God in these last days. But he doesn't just say watch. He says watch and pray. And there's a specific there. There's a specific way in which we're advised, guided, to pray in the last hour, to pray in the, in the closing out of time. Remember when Christ went all through his life, the apostles and the disciples around him were so keen to pray, I have no doubt of it. But when it came to the moment of the cross, they all deserted him. When it came to the crux, they were all gone. It, it's hard to believe, but it's true. And they were not prepared for that hour. And right there and then, he said, come, will you not watch with me one hour, the last hour, before the showdown? And I fear it's the same in the last days, that we too get sleepy, and goodness knows in this heat, <laughs> you can't get sleepy. But I, I, I fear for the church, I fear for myself, that I would miss that and in some way lose, you know, the, the intent of God for us. So tonight we're going to look at not just how to pray, but how to pray in this end times harvest. How to pray in the last days. And some of the things that John in his gospel, very surprisingly, tells us about prayer. You will have heard the term awakening. You will have heard the term revival and the term harvest. And they all sort of refer to different things within the kingdom. We use the term awakening to describe when a nation comes under God, and under the power of the Holy Ghost, and many people get saved. There was a great awakening. We use the term revival to talk about the church when, you know, there's revivalists instead of evangelists. Evangelists lead the lost to Christ. Revivalists stir up the church because you revive that which was already living. So there's awakenings, there's revivals, and then there's this term harvest. And it can get a bit confusing as to which term applies to which activity of God. And for tonight's purposes, I want to put all three together. Because in the last days, the scripture's got a lot to say about what's going to happen. There will be a revival right in here, amen, in the church. There will be an, a, a great harvest to come in. The cross will, will not be left to shame, you know. Jesus will have that harvest. God will have that. And people will flood into the kingdom. Jews and Gentiles, amen. 
So we can expect that. I want to put them all together tonight and ask myself, what, what way should I pray in this great end times harvest? What do I need to know? What do the scriptures point out as highlights for me to be aware of? I mean, for a start, let's ask ourselves this question. Why do revivals happen anyway? I mean, all over the world, there's revivals tonight, right? All over the world, there's, there's masses of people. What, in China alone, 34,000 a day? Ha! 34,000 a day, they estimate getting saved. So why does that happen? Why is it in Bogota that a guy can start a church with 250 people and then be 250,000? How did you do that? What happened there? Does God get bored? Is God sitting in heaven and the world's turning and he's thinking, I'm a bit bored. I think I'll go to Bogota and stir up a bit of a revival. What, why do these things happen? And the answer is, you see, it's not God. It's man. It's not God. These things happen in nations and churches where people do their part. Very simple. Do you know what happened in Bogota? Some people followed the game plan. Some people did what they were told. Do you know what happened at Pentecost in the upper room? God didn't get bored. Jesus told them what to do. Tarry, wait, pray, fast. They were told what to do. And the result, what did they do? They obeyed. For 52 days, they went to the upper room. They tarried, they prayed, they fasted. Boom! Pentecost. Right? Revival. So, we've got to get it out of our minds that we're asking God to do something. God's already made His will crystal clear. It's us that's the problem. We don't do our part. And if we do, we don't do it seriously enough or fervently enough. Right? So, and hey... It's true all over the world. It's true in Bogota that Caesar Castellanos, the leader of that particular movement there, did exactly that. It's true in Korea. Do you think it's a coincidence that the church on earth that prays more than any other is also the biggest? Korea, right? David Yonggi Cho, the prayer mountain, the church that obeyed also saw the greatest harvest. It wasn't something that they were waiting on God to do. It was something God is waiting on you to do and me to do. And that is applying not just to prayer though. It's not just praying that is the answer here at all. Because we can just get religious about that. Indeed, most of you will have heard of a man called T.L. Osborne. And T.L. Osborne, he, I mean, he's, he's no idiot. He, he, he estimates that 75% of your prayers are a waste of time. <laughs> Now, this is, this is a smart guy. It's a good guy here, T.L. Osborne, right? It's a real man of God, and he's not making statements like that glibly. He's making it after a lot of research, a lot of listening, a lot of taking notes about what people are praying. And his conclusion is around 75% of what people are giving their energy to in prayer is an absolute waste of their time and their energy. And he says, the, the, the reason he's come up with that statistic is because after listening, people are either asking God to do what he's already told them to do, or they're praying for revival, but in the wrong way, or they're asking God to do what he has already done. 
And the, those three mistakes take up the bulk of the prayer, and he's talking about believers here, of questions. And as you start to look at the scriptures, you can, I mean, take the example of finance, for instance. I love what David Pawson says. He says, um, finance is the one thing that you don't have to pray for. You know, you pray for everything else. But isn't it funny that the one thing that you don't have to pray for, all the Christians pray about. <laughs> and the reason he says that is because finance comes by principles, right? You operate the principles and the fruit and the harvest looks after itself. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and everything will be added to you. It's an obedience thing. So what he was getting at there is if you just do your bit, finance is never a problem. You don't actually have to, you know, so much pray as do. See, when the church doesn't know what to do, it does religious things. When the church doesn't know the next step to make or how to make it, they get caught up in all kinds of religious things. That's true today, and it was equally true in the days of Jesus. So take a look at John chapter 4 and verse 34. John 4, 34, and this is Jesus talking, and he's talking to, you know, sincere followers, talking to his apostles, his disciples. John 4, 34. My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do not, do you not say, four more months and then the harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life. And the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. But I sent you to reap. And uh, to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Jesus basically begins to give some instruction about how the church should pray. What to look for, what not to look for. What to pray about what not to pray about, right? And he sort of rebukes them. Stop saying, it's not time yet. Stop saying, one more year and everything will be okay. Open your eyes and look, the fields are white unto harvest. And how often do you hear people pray, you know? Someone, you know, is sick or something and they come to you for prayer. And you, you, you pray and say, oh, God's going to heal you. And the person says, you know, when? And you say, next year, oh, hallelujah. <laughs> Very easy, isn't it? And that's what they're doing here. There's actually just religious prayers, but there's no faith. There's no faith behind it. You're just mouthing words. You don't know what to do. So you're going through the motions. And Jesus is getting right to the root of the problem. Stop saying that. Stop saying another year. And I tell you, you could travel the globe, folks from church after church after church, and you will hear the inverted commas prophecy, and I do not treat prophecy with contempt. We're a church that absolutely you know, embraces prophecy. But hey, some of it you have to question. We're supposed to weigh everything, you know. And you hear some of these prophecies, and you've got to ask yourself if that's God. You know? You know, you go into churches, and you'll hear prayers all the time. Three more years, and we're going to see someone say... Three more years and there'll be a revival. And over and over again, it's just a little while off, just a little moment and everything's going to be okay. 
And it sounds so good and we can all pack up and go home. Because there's no immediate pressure on you. And so it's always pushed forward, pushed forward. But it's never on our lap today, is it? And that's what Jesus is getting at here. Stop saying that. Stop saying that there's something to wait upon. Stop saying that God's not ready yet. And letting yourself off the hook so easily. Open your eyes and look, he says. Are the fields not white? But we can't see that. Unbelief, doubt, religion, or whatever stops us seeing it. You see, true revival is something that's inside us. True revival is something not so much that, you know, God comes down from heaven and does, as it were, but something that we should carry in us all the days of our life. And then you'll spread that. You'll overflow. You'll spill over everybody you see and come in contact with. Now, I don't know if I'm making myself clear. Let me say it really clearly. There's two types of happening on the earth that take place in churches. One of them is okay, but it's not what we're looking for. And the other one is the God thing that we're really looking for. I don't mean to, to badmouth or to speak derogatorily about what I'm about to say in these places. But everybody knows what happened in Toronto, for example. Now, everybody knows what happened in Pensacola or Grand Rapids. Now, these are recent, inverted commas, revivals that took place. Now, please listen, folks. They're all a particular type. They're all a particular type of movement that happened. God, absolutely God, no problem. God moving amongst his people, things happening. But then you've got something like Bogota or Korea. Completely different events. I mean, if, can you see the difference between Korea and Toronto? Let me tell you what the difference is. In Toronto, there's a big warehouse at the airport. God bless them. And Christians fly from all over the world and bask in the presence of God. In Korea, the warehouses are empty, the Christians are out evangelizing, and 750,000 people or whatever come to Christ. It's the city being brought into the kingdom. There's a difference, Amen. a big difference. Nothing wrong with basking in the presence of God. Indeed, I spent some time with the leader of the revival in Grand Rapids. He happened to be in Singapore when I was there, and he was talking about the wounds of his church and how they were in trouble, and God came and met them. But understand this, and it's a vital point. What happened in Toronto is a question of time, circumstance, and chance. Ecclesiastes. Time and chance can happen to anyone. Just so happened God did something there. What happened in Grand Rapids, pretty much it seems the same sort of thing. But what I want you to see is that what happened in Korea is not a coincidence. It is not a chance. It's not a chance happening. It's a completely different thing. It is something that has happened because of the obedience of men. Indeed, I would include Singapore within that category. I don't know the official statistics are 26% saved or something like that. They reckon it's much higher than that. So do you get, do you get my point? Does God love Singaporeans more than Scots? No. Yes. No, I'm only joking. <laughs> no. He doesn't. <laughs> it's all the same. It's just that they are obeying where other nations are not. So if we do the same principles, one of them, say Grand Rapids or whatever, it's, the, it's, it, 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 it's just time and chance. And it could have happened here. But you know what? Just as it blows in, it can blow out. Just as the Lord did stir something up, that's fine. But it wasn't you that started it. 
So it won't be you that keeps it. And if God chooses to move on because it wasn't principle-based, because it wasn't something the church started, it can just as easily leave as it did, you know, begin. So we're looking for a revival, absolutely. But we're looking for one that's based on biblical principles, really, that we begin and we continue. And that's His will. And He hands it over to you. When Jesus was in the world, He said, I am the light of the world. And before He leaves, He says, you are the light of the world. It's over to you. Now stop putting it back in my court. <laughs> but the church keeps knocking. No, you keep it. You do your part. And that's where we fall down. Many of you will know a program called The Dragon's Den. It goes by different names around the world, but it's in many different countries. It's the program where entrepreneurs come in. I love it. I think it's brilliant. <laughs> they come in and they get roasted by the dragons with their ideas. And one of the people in the UK version of that is called Peter Jones. Now, he's currently a telecoms magnate or whatever, you know? I think he's worth about 300 million today. But listen to, listen to his history. Peter Jones is a very successful young man, young businessman, and he grew his fortune, I don't know what it was, 20 million or something like that. And you know what? He lost everything. He was completely bankrupt. He, he has nothing. He goes up to like your 20 million, and then he has a disaster. He loses everything. And do you know what he did? No problem. Start again. Rolls up his sleeves. Today he's worth 300 million. Now, <laughs> you get the picture? If you know what the principles are, if you know how to make something work, then you can just go right back and start it again. And it isn't for no reason that for 30, 40 years, Korea has constantly moved into their city. It's not for no reason. It's not a blow-in, blow-out situation. It's something concrete. It's something based not upon prayer so much as upon principles. And principles are higher than prayers. God says, I have exalted my word above my name. Principles are much better things to operate on than the hope or the chance or some vague faith that we might have. Principles are higher than prayers in that regard. And any revival that we have here, that's exactly what we want. We want it to be based on what Christ says that we should do in the last days. I don't want to be one of those 75% <laughs> prayers that, you know, 75% of my time is wasted. God forbid that that should ever be the case. So let's get the religious stuff out then. Let's get the junk out. And Jesus here, you can see what he says. He goes through, a, not a long list, but he tells us what not to do. Point one in your notes tonight. He says, in terms of revival, in terms of revival coming to this city, rule number one, you do not wait for it. Do not say one more year. Don't say it's not time yet. Stop saying that. Get that out of your speech. Don't let it happen. Amen? Number two, not only don't, don't say it, don't pray it. Don't pray that stuff because it's not correct. God is ready. God is ready right here and right now. It's us that have got the problem. So stop praying that, right? Because this just does not line up. The fields are white. <sighs> you know Arthur, Arthur Blessed? Many of you will know Arthur Blessed. He's the guy who carries the cross around the world. He's absolutely a fantastic, phenomenal individual. Um, 
And he, there's a very famous preacher in London called R.T. Kendall in the Westminster Chapel, and he invited Arthur Blessed to his church to help him with the evangelism ministry. Both good men. Very different perspectives. And Kendall is a very sincere, very good Christian, and he's thinking, I wonder what it is that Blessed's got, that all these people got saved and are still getting saved. What is it different than me and him? So Kendall does a good thing. He rings him up and says, would you come to our church and work with our evangelism team. He said, yeah, yeah, no problem. So, and he comes, and they're all in the, in the church, and they're praying, and they're going into London to a place called Bold Street. And fine, pack up their stuff, and out they go. They get outside the door of the church, and Blessed comes out, and Kendall's got the team, and he's walking off. And Blessed turns, he sees a, a, an old man, and he just says, hang on a second. He goes, and he starts to talk to this old guy and the minutes go by and Kendall's got his team going into town I've got to get to Bowl Street and Blessed's looking and he's talking and talking and in the end R.T. Kendall, uh, uh, Kendall came over and said you've got to come we've got to go and, and, and Arthur Blessed said excuse me just leave me right here I'm busy and he carried on and Kendall was getting so mad so furious and time went by, time went by, and eventually, blessed, prayed with the man, you know, led him to the Lord. The guy stood there, and then he turned round to Kendall and said, what's your problem? You, you, know, you don't talk to Archie Kendall like that. <laughs> what's your problem? He says, we've, we've, we've got to go. And blessed said, open your eyes. What's wrong with him? Where are you go what's wrong with this guy? Where are you going? Where are you going that he doesn't need salvation? You see the religion. You've got to get the bowl street. You've got to get the bowl street. No. Open your eyes, Mr. Kendall. Open your eyes, Mr. McKeever. Because salvation is right at your feet. But religion, you know, t tends to fight against that. And we've got to watch that. Could I have a, a note, please? One of those notes from tonight? Thanks. Thanks. So number one, don't wait for it. Number two, don't pray for it, Jesus says. Number three, pray that we see on two levels. And I won't go to Anablebo again, <laughs> but I love it. I love that, 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 that phrase where Jesus looked up and received. It's just fantastic. If there's ever a foundation for your daily prayer life, that's got to be it. See what God is doing and do that. There's your miracle. Don't just go into automatic pilot. Lift up your eyes and receive sight receive vision he says it to them here open your eyes again they were truly blind you see and God needed to change their vision it's the it's the third point on your notes we need to be able to see truly on two levels and there's a lot in that I, I know but God God needs to change my mind you know when you look at the city center of Glasgow or any city around the world don't answer this well what do you see what do you really see is it negative? Is it death? Hey, Ezekiel, take a look there. What do you see? Oh, God, all dead, Lord. All dead, long dead. Well, you better do your job then, Ezekiel, hadn't you? Start to speak. Start to prophesy. Start to speak. No, you do, no, you do it, Ezekiel. You do your job. What do you see in your workplace? What do you really see? Do you see death? 
or do you see life? And Jesus says to them, open your eyes. They've got their eyes shut. They're blind, spiritually blind. Open your eyes and take another look and praise God. He can change your vision. He can change the way that you see things. Our worldwide overseer is a guy called Pastor Rick Seward. And I was astonished. Rick has got more faith in people than you could possibly believe. He's a real believer in people. And I so admire that. I think it's a great attribute to have. But I remember him sharing one day, and I was shocked because of his testimony. He said when he came into the ministry, he couldn't believe in anybody. No one. No one. He couldn't work with people, didn't believe in people. They'll never make it. She'll never make it. He'll never make it. And he said he had to take himself away and say, God, you need to deal with me. You need to open my eyes. Let me see things differently. And boom, he changed as a person. And I can testify from personal experience that he can see good everywhere he looks. I've been in situations where I would have written people off no problem. But he can see still a flicker of life, a, a, a smoldering wick. Fantastic. It's God that does stuff like that. Changes how people see. And that's what Jesus is saying right here. And I mean, tonight we're talking about the lost, but you could apply that to anything. A relationship you're struggling with. Someone you should witness to, but you're not getting on with them or something. And they know you don't like them. God, help me to see them like you see them. You know, I once had a guy, he was struggling with mental illness. And he wanted to run a youth group in our church. But I mean, one day he came in and picked me off the ground and slammed me against the wall. He had me up, I thought, oh, wow. Really out of his mind completely. And I was working with him and he, he, he was getting really freaked out, you know. And he said, I want to run the youth group. I thought, oh dear, that's going to be some youth group. And I somehow, and he was getting on my nerves because he was pestering me about this youth thing and I had to let him down without destroying him. So I made an appointment to see him and I was going to take away from him the thing that he felt would be his salvation, the thing that he, he, he thought would give him hope in life. And I didn't, he was annoying me. <laughs> it was really getting to me. And I stopped before that meeting. Thank God I did. And I said, God, as I go to meet this man, I'm struggling. I'm really struggling. Shh, let me see him. What do you see, God? Just for, the, just for asking, all of a sudden I saw what Jesus saw. It was a man who was mentally ill and yet offering his life to Christ in the full knowledge that when he stepped onto the front line, he would go even madder still probably because of the pressure of ministry and end up back in an institution. And God was whispering, but he loves me so much that he's willing to take the risk of being locked up. Why, y'all? I never saw it that way. I went into that coffee shop. This is exactly what happened. I went to a coffee shop in Rathmines in Dublin, and I sat down with a guy. I got a cup of coffee. He's looking at me, and I cried like a baby. I just wept and wept, and he was thinking, you know, he all right? <laughs> you know, something wrong with him. And eventually, I got it out. 
I said, this is what happened. I'm coming to tell you, you can't possibly lead the youth. And this is what God has shown me. God not only got me off the hook with a problem, but that guy left and flew home because God loved him and understood his circumstance. He didn't need the ministry to lift him out of it. He had a, a, a reassurance of his relationship with God. That's vision. Just a moment to say, God, I'm not really cutting it with this person. Help me to see them like I should. Open your eyes. Anablebo. It's the same thing. It's receiving sight from God of the lost, of your city, of, of relationships you're struggling with. So are we saying that we don't pray? Absolutely not. What, 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 what Jesus is saying here is that you need to watch what you actually pray that, and, and guard that closely. Focus on it. Listen to yourself and make sure you're praying correctly. If we don't pray for all that stuff, what do we pray for? Now that's point four. We pray against principalities and powers, the very thing the Bible told us to in Ephesians, right? We tear down, we build up, we bind, we loose. Point five, we, we command the veils that are over people's eyes to be removed. Now, I don't know if you, if you know what that means, but we're, we're commanded to do that. There are all sorts of veils over people's eyes. There's distraction, delusion. You know, distraction's a big one, I feel, in Glasgow. People are blind to your gospel, right? You're trying to tell them about Jesus and their death. And you think, don't you get it? No, they don't. And there are spiritual reasons why. Uh, veils, the Bible calls it, that need to be brought down, right? And that's our job in prayer. We pray first, then we go in and do our ministry or, or go to that person. And what a difference there is when we do that bit first and then strike. Rather than just a religious prayer, Lord, save them next year. No, Lord, remove the veil. And when you know, I'm with that person, I'm testifying, let the words go in and enter their lives. Now, we don't see enough of this. I remember the best example I've ever seen of this was we ran a drop-in center for people on drugs. And this one guy was coming in. His name was Kevin Ellis. And he was dominating me and bullying me, and I couldn't cope with him. He was a big, strapping lad. He was not going to stop for anyone. And I ran the center pretty strictly, pretty tightly, because there was no drug sales or anything. They weren't allowed to, to do that on our premises. And there would be hundreds of you know, people would come in all the time. It was an extremely busy place. And people would listen to me, and they would respect me. Not Kevin. Not Kevin. <laughs> and from the moment he walked in, I thought, I've got trouble. This guy's going to rule the roost. He would just push me aside, go in and do his business, and walk out. What do I do? I don't know what to do. He was too powerful. I just couldn't cope with him. And one night, we had a, a special meeting. And there was many people coming, actually. It was with uh, St. Mark's Church in Dublin, and they brought a whole crew in, and there was testimonies. And guess who turns up? High as a kite on drugs. Kevin and two friends. His brother has actually died since. Kevin turns up, and they're on speed or whatever, and they're just going mad. They come in. Now, I've got lots of backup this night, so I wasn't feeling pressured that way. I just thought, well, they're just, uh, you know, completely going to waste everybody's time. No. <laughs> As the testimonies went on and the worship was going up, I got the shock of my life. Kevin stands up and the glory of God comes upon him. He comes over to Liam Joyce, who's in Cumbernauld here. We're standing at the side and we could see Jesus 
in this guy. Drugs affected, gone. And he just walked over. He didn't have to say a word. I thought, whoa, born again, spirit-filled, wonderful, fantastic, veal gone, veal gone. Simply, do you know what that was? I didn't know. I didn't know how to pray. I'm working with these people. All my energy's going into it, but I didn't know how to pray. A bunch of people come who have spent time tearing down the veils, taking away the deafness, opening the eyes. They come in and go with the fruit. Oh, that's it. Wrong energy. 75% of my life, my energy is going in the wrong way. But it's a wonderful thing to see. This is the kind of thing that accompanied Jesus Christ. And this is the kind of thing that should be with us everywhere we go. But you've got to do your homework. You've got to pray before you go. Seek God for the way to see situations. Number six, pray for your own perception that you won't have a negative or, 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 or you know, bad perception of your own city, of your own family, of your own neighbors. That for you it won't be mission impossible. It will be very much mission possible. Point seven. Look at where you're coming from. Look at John's Gospel, chapter 3. And I love this bit here. There's an encouraging scripture. John 3 and verse 31. Jesus tells them the attitude that they should have. John 3, 31. The one who comes from above is above all. And the one, uh, uh, the one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. See that? Speaking negatively, speaking like any of the lost can speak. And that can't be us. We must be as those who come from above, born from on high, as it says in John 3, isn't it? Right? You know, I, I, I love Reinhard Bonnke's testimony of one of the first times he was in Africa. And, and he was going to sleep. He was in bed. And all of a sudden, there was an enormous racket outside his window. And he went and he pulls back the curtains. And there's a whole troop of witch doctors and they're casting spells and doing all their stuff, you know. And Bonky goes, keep the noise down, I'm trying to sleep. <laughs> One who comes from below? I don't think so. One who comes from above and is not under any confusion about who actually has the authority in that place. I do. I do, thank you. King and priest. And right now you are powerless God with a very small g. Amen? One who comes from above. And so we should be in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in the city, in Glasgow. Amen? Amen. Point eight. Pray about how you see the lost. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9 a moment. Take a look at that. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9, and verse 36 to 37. Wonderful and a very beautiful scripture here. I'll read from verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the gospel and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. He wasn't angry at them, not mad at them. They're lost after all, lost and deceived. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion at them, on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And what a telling scripture that is. You know, one young evangelist was once following around a, a, an older man who had led many people to the Lord over his life. And the young man who had led like next to no one was uh, just awestruck. How do you 
do that. And one day he actually approached the evangelist and said, I, I, I'm an evangelist too, <laughs> but it doesn't seem to work for me. What is it that you're doing that I'm not? And the evangelist simply said to him, I believe. <laughs> I believe they'll get saved. I believe God loves them. He's on their side that he'll pull them into the kingdom. I believe in them. I believe for them. And they catch that. They pick that up, right? But if you don't, if you go to the lost with a negative attitude, hey, oh, I don't think you'll ever get saved, but here's a tract anyway. You know, it can be, maybe we won't say it, but it's what we're thinking. There's no point in the Oh, dangerous stuff. Amen. Have that, that belief within us. And look at the thing that Jesus says. They were like goats without a shepherd. No, like sheep without a shepherd. He saw them as his own. He embraced them like his own. And that's why the sinners flocked to him. Didn't see that. I mean, amen. God made the world. This is his world, his kingdom that he wanted to establish. Sheep. And when you're with, again, your family or your neighbors, they know very well whether you are treating them like a sheep or a goat. If you've got a lofty attitude, don't touch me. I'm born again. <laughs> Stay back. And that's exactly the opposite that we have here. Jesus goes to the lost and embraces them like sheep, like his own. And they would become his own through the love that he showed. And I think we can miss that one. Amen, can't we? How do we see the city? How do we see our city? How do we see our relatives? And God, I pray God, give us his eyes. And the last point, in John 4 and 38, Jesus says, I sent you to reap and don't forget it. Now, we as a church are heavily engaged in street work and so we will be until Christ returns. And that's fine. And I've, as you know, I've done street work for many years. And week after week, you go down there and you hand out the leaflets and everything else. Um, but <laughs> we would often come back, you know, and, and encourage yourself. You've just spent two or three hours in the town somewhere and you've, a lot of people have gone out and you've given out a thousand tracts or something. And you need to encourage yourself. So you come back to the church and how did you get on? Oh, fine. Yeah, great. We sowed some seed today. Amen. We'll sow some seed next week as well. And the next week, amen. Any reaping going on around here? Oh, no, 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 no reaping. I sent you to reap. And that's what Jesus says to them. It's actually quite easy to sow. But it takes faith in you to reap. And that's his point. Amen, we should sow. I'm not saying don't sow. Get those tracks out. I believe in tracks with all my heart. Get as many out as possible. Sow liberally and we will reap liberally. But it takes faith in the heart. And he reminds his disciples, don't just content yourself. Well, we did our job. We went to town. We preached the gospel. Never mind if they don't want to respond. At least I did mine. It's not quite that simple or that easy. There's faith missing. And he reminds them, I sent you to reap. And whatever obstacles are in you that stop that happening, whatever faith blockages or deafness in me or you, remove it and start to see that Christ died to save people, believe in people. Ask God to unblock that. And Anna Blebo, put in us your vision of the lost, your vision of this city. Amen? Amen. Amen.
God, we pray tonight. We take this seriously and we take it to heart. Would you help us, Jesus, in, in, in every way to walk obediently to these things? And as a church, we commit ourselves to the, 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 the work of evangelism, God, in whatever way you use us in that, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, and as a church in this city. Lead us and strengthen us in all these things we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.